0: The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org.
1: Our scripture reading today is from Genesis 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew back in front of you or close by. And if you don't have one at home, please take that as a gift from Park Church. Genesis 3, 8 through 24. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel to the woman. He said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever Therefore the lord god sent him out of the garden of eden to work the ground from which he was taken He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of eden He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life This is the word of the lord
0: Good evening we have a few announcements before we pray and turn to Genesis 3. Uh, you should have been handed this card, this beautiful little card, when you walked in. It says, Created to Create. Um, we are hosting our third symposium as a church. We uh, periodically do these symposiums in order to bring in some outside thinkers and writers uh, and, and artists to help us see the, the, the places in which um, that what we believe and confess to be true about God and the world in which we live— um, that The places where these things converge, um, and to focus on these things, to wrestle with these things together, um, and to have uh, these authors and writers and thinkers come and help us um, think about these things more clearly. Uh, we're handing this to you. I know it's not—our uh, symposium doesn't happen until November 6th and 7th. Um, the three uh, people that we are having um, as guests for the symposium um, are—we're very, very excited about them. And, uh, and so we want you to kind of reserve these dates uh, to be with us on that Friday and Saturday evening. Um, registration is actually open online. It's free registration, um, but we do think that because of the caliber of the speakers that we're having and the artists that we're having, um, that, that we are going to be uh, packed out on that Friday and Saturday night. And so we want to encourage you to register as soon as possible um, because we do have limited space. Um, the three uh, guests that we're going to have with us, first is Andy Crouch. Um, he's the executive editor at Christianity Today. He's the author of a number of books, extremely good books. We have them on ourselves. Um, I would recommend any of those books to you. Um, Indy Wilson, he's author of a number of children's books and two uh, works of nonfiction that we both have both of those on ourselves uh, that are are two of really my favorite books in the world. Um, And then then last, our our guest artist for that symposium is going to be Andrew Peterson. We're going to come together and the topic that we've we've chosen to take up, in years past we've covered different things. Uh, The first year we talked about world missions um, and how that meets with our call to live as missionaries in this city. Um, our, our last symposium, we talked about rhythms, liturgies, stories uh, that we live in um, in the midst of our day to day life and, and the, the alternative rhythm or liturgy that we're to live in um, as the people of God and the church. And this one, um, really very much in line with um, the current series that we're in now, is what does it mean that we're called to bear the image of God in the world um, as those who create things, as those who create culture um, and, and, and live in the midst of stories? in our world that are meant to reflect the goodness and the glory of God. And so um, these three guests are going to be massively helpful in in leading us into thinking about these things, wrestling with these things, and hopefully living more faithfully in the world. So I want to encourage you to go to the website. If you want more information, um, you can get that information on that website. And uh, we'd love um, for as many people from Park Church to be a part of that as Possible. Again, that's November 6th and 2nd. I want to mention to you uh, one more time on October 2nd here on Friday night. Um, we're going to come together uh, to learn from uh, 20 different organizations that we partner with in the city. Um, We believe our call as a church body is to love our city, um, to serve our city in very, very tangible ways. Um, And so we want to partner with organizations that are serving our our city in strategic ways. Um, And and so our hope is that you would bring your family, that you'd come with gospel communities, that you'd find an organization or two um, that you can serve, that you can work alongside with as we seek as a church to find ways um, to serve our city. Last thing that I'll mention to you, if Park Church is your home, if this is the community that you belong to, um, if you are on mission with us um, in this city, uh, we would ask that you give financially regularly um, to the mission of the church. I believe that the call of God is not merely to to show up and to attend a service, but to belong to a family, um, to own the vision and the mission of the church. And one of the ways, um, one of the most tangible ways that you can do that is by giving financially and regularly um, to Park Church Denver. Um, A number of you have have faithfully given um, on on the city and have been giving faithfully on the city. We're in the process of, of transitioning from using the city. If you don't know what the city is, don't worry. You should just hear the second part of this. Um, We're in the middle of transitioning from the city to uh, Church Community Builder. Um, And so we're we're also, one of the things we're trying to transition is all of our giving over to CCB or Church Community Builder. So if you've currently been giving on the city, we'd ask you to just go online, um, uh, shut that down, and then start giving on CCB. We're trying to make that transition over the next couple of months. And and we would very, very much like your help in that process. Um, If you're not giving at all online, um, giving through CCB is very, very easy. And uh, we would love for you to start. So, you can also give in the back. Let me pray. And, uh, and we will get going. Father, we live in an incessantly frustrating world. We, we deal... With just the the thorns and the thistles of of the jobs that we work, of the um, schoolwork that we attempt to do, of just what it means to live in the midst of the world and try to accomplish things, it's just hard. Things wear us down. Difficulties, challenges that we didn't foresee, challenges that we did foresee, they just seem to come again and again and again and again and again, and it is frustrating. And God, other people, other people are frustrating. And then we find in ourselves I mean, constant desires and, and, and just stupid decisions and, and postures and, and anxieties and ways of living in the world that, that um, are frustrating. We, we feel that the glory of the call that you lay before us to, um, to wield our lives for the good of people, to wield our lives for the, for the glory of God. And yet it feels like just the daily grind of doing the same thing, of, of putting in the hours, of going to a job that feels frustrating or working with people that feel frustrating or finding our own limitations frustrating comes again and again and again and makes all of life feel futile. So, God, I pray that tonight, over the next few minutes, that you'd come and, in grace, show us where that futility comes from. Show us us how that futility calls us to something. It calls us not only to perseverance, not only to just keep on going, but it calls us to find our hope and our identity in you. And then tonight, oh God, I pray that your spirit would be here calling us to know you, to love you, to trust you, and then to spend our lives on your glory and on people. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, This week we are in the second week of a series, a three-week series, as we begin to look at and examine um, the, the nature of vocation or the work that we've been called to do in the world. Um, Last week we began with um, this clear call that God has sent us, He's placed us in the world to bear His image, Um, that we've been created in the image of God, we've been created with certain capabilities, certain gifts, certain desires, certain inclinations, that we are then to, um, trusting in God, loving God, delighting in God, to take those gifts and bear them in the world. And we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, where, where God establishes for us this idea of that He's not only created us, but He's also redeemed us for good works. And good works not merely being religious works or ethical works or moral works, uh, but us wielding our lives for, for really two purposes. One, for His glory and His name, that, that, that the world would see something of what this God is like, His character, His nature, His beauty, His goodness. That we would reflect in the world His glory through the work that we do with our hands, through the work that we do with our minds, um, through the, the way that we wield our lives. And secondly, that we would wield our lives not only for the glory of God, but also for the flourishing of people. That that you've been put in the world not only to seek, um, not, not merely to survive, not merely to earn a paycheck, but, but to do things with your life so, so that other people, people around you, um, or maybe people far, far down the supply chain, wherever they may be, that they might flourish, that they might come alive, that they might um, not only know something more about God, but just experience His provision. And so we talked about the work that you've been called to do as the means by which God not only makes himself known in the world, but actually provides for people. And we, we, we thought back to um, Luther's old maxim, that, that in the providence of God, He provides us with milk, but where does that milk come from? How does he provide that milk? Well He provides it through a milkmaid, through a milk carriage, and the horse that pulled the carriage. And all of the means along the way, the work that we do is called to, um, is the means by which in God's providence, He cares for the world, He cares for people, and He glorifies His name. Our hope last week is that you left here with a clear sense of calling, a compelling vision again of, of what it is that you're called to do, the work that you're called to do. And again, if you'll remember, this work was not limited to what you were in a paycheck doing, but but every way in which you're called to wield your life, to wield the gifts that God's given you, but for His glory and for the good of people. So whatever season you happen to find yourself in right now, maybe you're a college student and you're um, just in the daily grind of showing up at class at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning and studying something like calculus. Calculus. Which sounds horrific to me, uh, but but you're, you're studying calculus. You're called to wield your life, wield your mind, and wield all of your life to to, to study numbers and how whatever calculus is, so, so that it, it leads to further flourishing. So that you understand the nature and the character of the world you live in. Uh, maybe right now you're you're staying at home with children. Uh, you're called to wield your life to demonstrate to these children the goodness of God, the glory of God, to seek their flourishing. Maybe you're in just a 9 to 5 job and working the day in and day out grind of of, of just a normal everyday work week and even there the hope is that you would, your work would be seen as purposeful as as created by God as ordained by God not as extraneous to his purposes in the world but right at the center of what it means to be a man or a woman bearing his image in the world. Now, now the problem is is what I did to you last week was really unfair. It was really unfair. You came in here, you heard this message, hopefully um it, it created some excitement, some sense of purpose, some sense of clarity, and then you went home and you you thought about work again, you thought about getting up on Monday and going to class or getting up on on Monday and, and, and heading out to the office, and, and as you got excited, and then you woke up on Monday morning and you kinda got dressed and you got psyched up again to think about what you were about to do that day, and then you showed up at the office. And it was hard. And there was that, that guy, you know the guy. I, I remember my very first job after my wife and I had married. We had moved um, to Fort Worth, Texas, and, uh, and we were kind of in that phase of life where you just work any job you possibly can, um, just anybody who will write you a paycheck. You just go and do whatever the thing is. You don't care, They're not, it's not about your career, it's just about paying rent and being married. And so um, we uh, had moved to Fort Worth, and I went and I got a job, At a paper, this is an old school thing, now many of you weren't alive during this phase of life, but um, there was a thing called a paper day planner by a company called Franklin Covey. You're all sitting there staring at me in shock. Yes, they killed trees and they turned those trees into paper and then on that paper there were numbers and you would write stuff on it and you would keep track of your appointments and what you did during the day. And so I worked at a company that sold, um, my very first job was a retail store um, after we got married. It was a retail store and they sold binders varying in plastic to alligator skin. um, And and then they had paper packets where they had the plain kind of green paper packets. um, And and then all the way up to, um, I I particularly remember the Monticello um, branding of the paper that was the very, very classy fonts on the Monticello. and, um, and, and so um, you would sell these things, and so um, i 'd interviewed for the job, and Melanie had given me the job, and I'll never forget Melanie, um, the, the manager of the store, and I came in for the very first day, my very first shift, um, and i 'm working um, with melanie 's going to be there for just a little bit and she 's going to leave, and then she 's going to leave me there with a man named John. As soon as I mentioned john 's name this morning, my wife began laughing hysterically because she remembered John. John was the sort who birthed cynicism everywhere he went. Not because he was a cynic, but because whatever he did, he drank the Kool-Aid. Just completely sold out, completely committed to the vision of Franklin Covey. He owned the nicest binder with a certain paper, the Monticello probably, uh, of Monticello brand paper. He had the perfect pen. And he was the guy that would show up to store meetings where we were talking about making sure that people were were mopping um, the back office and making sure that the the envelopes were stacked neatly. And he would have his planner out and he would be taking notes on ensuring um, mop the floor fold the envelopes, and he would take meticulous notes. He, he, he believed absolutely in everything that we were doing. This was the, the, the pinnacle of glory, the pinnacle of purpose. But was selling paper and selling binders to people who would come in the store. And so um, I, I immediately was introduced to John, and all my excitement, and it was limited to be sure, but my excitement to begin with, it was immediately deflated by the sheer, sheer, Inconceivable excitement of this man named John. Um, so I met John. My second shift, I met a guy named Eric. Eric was the complete opposite of John. I met Eric. Um, I came into the store. Melanie had already left. Um, Eric was sitting on the back cash wrap like this. I soon learned of Eric that Eric never moved. And he never spoke to anyone. And if you asked him to speak to someone or asked him to move, his response was, was always exactly the same. Brian, calm down. We sell overpriced paper to people with control issues. <laughs> and that was all he would say. He said, hey, can you help me in the back? We've got to mop the floor. Brian, calm down. We sell overpriced paper to people with control issues. Hey, Eric, can you help that customer that just walked in? They're, they're very confused about the Monticello versus the green. Um, wait, wait, can, can you go help them? Brian, calm down. We sell overpriced paper to people with control issues. It was the same answer over and over and over again. Um, and, and, and then there was just the challenge of, um, this was the, the era of the birth of the smartphone. While I worked there, um, uh, the, they had Palm Pilots and all kinds of stuff like that. It had all come out and people, for whatever reason, I don't know why, um, quit coming into the store. And so we had sales goals that we were supposed to meet every week and it was just impossible to meet those goals. I mean, literally no one would walk in the door and if they did, John would talk to them and sell them on 15 different things in the store and there was no way to keep up. And so we're constantly facing... Um, every day when I went to this job, I was dealing with John, the, the enthusiasm killer because he sucked all enthusiasm from the room and became a beacon of enthusiasm. And then there was Eric who... who he just hated everything, and, and then there was just the sheer challenge of trying to sell things. And, and here's the reality. Last week you left here, hopefully excited a clear biblical vision of what work is for, And then you went to class the next day, and you sat next to Eric in calculus. And you're thinking, "I'm going to work hard. I'm going to learn this material." And Eric looked at you, and Eric said, "You'll never use this the rest of your life. This is stupid." And so you put your pen away, and you pulled out your phone, and you started playing solitaire. Um, Or or you went to your job, and and there, um, with with the the enthusiasm that you kind of had now for purpose, um, you sat next to John, and John is so over the top that it just kind of deflated you from the inside out. Or maybe you went to a job, and you didn't have to deal with a John or an Eric at all. You're just the challenge of what you're facing day in and day out. I was thinking particularly of doctors, This morning. Like, what a difficult profession. No matter how many victories you win, eventually you're gonna lose. And how hard, how difficult that grind must be over and over and over and over again. Just be faced with the reality of how difficult your work is. Here's what I want us to do with the time that remains. Uh, Last week we talked about the purpose of work. We really, um, as we we worked through Ephesians chapter 2, and we also uh, made reference to, talked about, um, really, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the purpose for which we've been made to bear God's image in the world. The Bible doesn't simply leave us with a clear sense of purpose. It actually explains to us why this week was so frustrating for you. It explains to us why the work that we're doing day in and day out, um, whether you're, you know, you're staying home with your kids or you're working in 9 to 5, you're a college student, wherever you happen to be right, right now in the scope of your work, it explains to us with, with, with often painful difficulty why that work is frustrating, why it feels like it's marked by futility, why sometimes it feels like it's just absolutely is destroying your soul. And so I want us to work our way through Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, we're coming off the heels of um, the creation stories from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that we talked about last week. And, and really the whole narrative of the Bible turns right here in this chapter. Um, I, I've heard it said that um, the reason why we have um, really everything between um, Genesis 2 and Revelation chapter 20 is because of what occurs in, in Genesis chapter 3. And it has massive ramifications, direct ramifications, um, for the frustration you're going to feel tomorrow morning at about 10 a.m. And so I want us to look at it, walk our way through it, and and see how the author of Genesis kind of lays out for us um, the biblical explanation for why things feel futile. So so look with me at the text. I want to begin in verse 8. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. But right here we see that the beginning of everything going wrong. You see, God had taken Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden, commissioned them to bear his image in the world, to be fruitful and multiply and flood the earth with his image, His glory that they were to wield their lives, they were to wield their gifts for, for the flourishing of, uh, of humanity, for the flourishing of the world and the glory of God. And, and in the midst of that, he'd given them one foundational command. Do not eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge. Don't eat the fr- fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Oftentimes th- this command is heard as kind of this almost this arbitrary command given. Like here's um, a myriad of different kinds of fruits. Here's one piece of fruit we don't want you to eat. So if you go into Safeway, hey, if you happen to come to the, um, the big box that holds the, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, kind of skip past it, go on and get a Macintosh apple, eat that, and avoid this piece of fruit. As though the command were just an arbitrary rule about what we should put in our mouths or not put in our mouths. But that's not, that's not where the narrative is ultimately trying to take us. You see this phrase, the knowledge of good and evil, it's, it's an, a phrase that would have been very, very familiar to, to a Jewish audience. This phrase um, carried with it ideas, particular ideas having to do when a Jewish teenager reached a certain age, the age of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, that there would be a celebration held, and this child, having attained this age, would, would no longer be a dependent dependent on um, his parents. His parents would no longer be responsible for the behavior, the actions, the choices uh, of their child. And, and so, this child was now um, responsible for for choosing good versus evil, of choosing that which was true over that which was false. Um, they became independent of their parents. So when God commands Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's not just saying, hey, don't eat that piece of fruit. He's saying, I want you to live all of your life in dependence on me. I want your frame of reference for what is right and wrong, for what is true and false, for what is beautiful and not, to be um, not independent of me, and not that you would set out on your own to try to make these choices and live your life on your own, but rather your whole life would be marked by a constant and aware dependence on me, on my word, on my goodness, on my faithfulness, that you would trust me, that you would depend on me, that you would never be independent of me. So for Adam and Eve to take this fruit and eat it was not merely them breaking a rule about what they should eat. It was a declaration of independence. It was them declaring in the midst of the world as, as, as created to be image bearers, created to reflect in the world what, the, what God was like. Instead of reflecting what he's, he, he was like, um, they, they insisted on being their own man, making their own choices. Deciding for themselves what is right and good and true. This is what happens just previous to this moment. And so when when God calls them to account, he's he's dealing with a man and a woman who were created for a particular purpose, the purpose we talked about last week. But rather than depending on God, rather than trusting God in the way that they were um, sent to do that, that they had determined that, no, we're going to do this work our own way, the way that we want to do it, according to the truth that we decide for ourselves, according to what we think is good, what we think is best for ourselves. In other words, their lives became a lie about the nature and the character of God, not depending on Him, not trusting Him. Now, Now, this creates one foundational problem, one massive problem, that um, I I believe that if you're reading this text earlier on, would jump off the page at you. Um, Beginning in verse 24. He drove out the man. You and I were created for communion with God. to, To live with Him, to dwell with Him, to walk with Him that the whole of our lives would be marked by knowing this God, trusting this God, and living with this God. That that symbolized in this, this idea of living in the garden. And this text ends with the biggest problem in this room. We have been driven from the presence of God. Let me make it more specific to what you're going to do tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. We have been driven from the presence of God. The work that you were called to do in communion with Him, that communion has been broken. It's been severed. Because we've chosen to be independent of Him. We've chosen, rather than depending on Him and trusting Him, our jobs become not about God, Our work becomes not about knowing him and delighting in him and making him known through the work that we do. Rather, it becomes about our own independence. And so, the foundational problem that's established um, right off the bat in Genesis chapter 3 is the thing that you and I were made for, the thing that we were made to do, the thing that was to mark our lives most deeply, every facet of our life has been broken, it's been lost. We've been driven from the presence of communion with God. Now, this carries with it implications that, that, that lead to understanding why last week was hard for you and I, why it was frustrating for you and I. And so I want to look at those one by one. First, um, beginning in verse 16, to the woman, God says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And so one of the implications of of what God does in, in, in seeing this rebellion and seeing us um breaking with our dependence on God is he comes and he speaks first he, he first speaks to the serpent and um but what he says to the serpent, we're gonna talk about um um next week. In, in, in terms of where um, all of that is promising that things are going to head. Um, but, but then he turns and he speaks specifically to the woman and he speaks specifically um, uh, there in the last half of that verse to the nature of the relationship between a husband and a wife. And, and I don't think that the implications of this are merely for a husband and wife. I, I think what he's saying is that even here in this place, in this most intimate of relationships, you will find envy and you will find strife. Um, He says here that your desire will be for your husband. Um, A number of scholars have noted that this phrase carries with it not, um, this isn't like good desire, this isn't longing to to be with your husband or to love your husband, uh, but embedded in this phrase is this idea of envy, this, this, this idea that I want his place, I want what he has. So here, the most intimate of human relationships, um, one of the implications of, um, one of the implications of what has happened in our rebellion against God is that all human relationships are now marked by envy. And he shall rule over you. Here, um, the implication being um, not um, that that this husband will will lead in kindness and gentleness um, uh, the wife that he's been given, but no, he will lord over her in pride, and using the relationship with her to, to make much of himself, to walk all over her. And so, beginning here, in this most intimate, most beautiful of places, between a husband and a wife, Even here, we find frustration, we find difficulty, we find strife, and we find envy. Now, all of us go to work and we have to deal with people. And those people are frustrating. And here's what you should expect from the work that you've been called to do. The people you're called to work with are going to frustrate you. You should expect, in fact, I would say this text is promising you, that you will find in every place of work, um, whether it's at home or at college um, or in the office, you are going to find envy, you're going to find strife, you're going to find incompetence, you're going to find brokenness, you're going to find people surrounding you um, and relationships that that are so damaged, so hurt. It's frustrating. It's really frustrating. Um, we uh, have reached the, the precious and wonderful phase of parenting. Um, I would call it the second best phase thus far of parenting. The first best phase was the moment when you realized that the kids can put on um, their car seats on their own. And so you no longer have to reach um, through the back seat to plug it in. Um, they can do it. It's amazing. Um, and so that was an amazing moment. We've reached the moment now that on Saturday afternoons um, at around 11.30, when the fourth quarter is just getting going um, on the college football game that you happen to be enjoying, say yesterday, um, and, and your daughter walks in and she says, Dad, I'm hungry. Um, we've reached the phase of life now where I don't have to get up and go in and make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, although it would be absolutely my joy to do so, just so you know. Um, but, but, but rather, in that moment, I can say to my daughter, go make yourself a sandwich with a smile and she with joy will bound out of the room and go make herself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and bring the sandwich in and sit next to me on the couch as we watch the end of the football game. Now now here's the problem is 30 to 40 minutes later when I get up and to go into the kitchen to make my own peanut butter and jelly sandwich um, I will walk into the kitchen and find that the countertop has been peanut buttered um, and um, and the peanut buttered knife with a glob of peanut butter is just sitting on the kitchen counter. And the grape jelly somehow has toppled over and grape jelly is spread. You could actually eat the countertop if it was um, the right material. And, um, and the, the bread that was sitting there, um, evidently left there open, there must have been an emergency, um, has, is now on the floor and the dog has eaten the bread, um, all of the bread, which is going to have later implications. And so... Um, And so you walk in and you find that we've entered this phase, this wonderful phase where they can make their own sandwiches but they have not yet learned to close the loop. And many of you work with people like this or live with them. (laughs) And and who knows why? Maybe they just never grew out of that phase Uh, but they go into um, the kitchen at work and you put your food away. They go into the kitchen at work and they, they, they make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on the counter and leave it there. Or, or, or whatever the, the thing happens to be over the course of your work, I mean, you're surrounded by people who, who, for whatever reason, can't close the loop. They can't, um, uh, they, they, they can't make things just simply do the most simple things imaginable, right? Um, to, to get it done. They're just frustrating. And, and then, and then there, there's the less innocuous kind of frustrations. The, the boss that just can't be honest with you. He just lies all the time. The coworker who's just marked by just palpable envy, but once um, once what everybody else has is never happy with what they have. Constantly afraid you're going to get stabbed in the back by him. The frustration over and over and over again. You teachers. That student you've cared for, you've loved, you've tutored, you've invested in, who just keeps making stupid choices over and over and over again. And and, and now there's nothing you can do. Tomorrow is going to be frustrating. It's supposed to be. But we live in a world that's marked by rebellion against God. And one of the sure signs that that rebellion is still real is that tomorrow, as you try to interact with other people, it will be frustrating. It will. But that's not all um, the author of Genesis tells us we can expect about our work. Let's keep going. Verse 17. And to Adam he said, Here's, here's the reality of what you should expect for your, your work tomorrow. Not only will other people be frustrating, the, the work that you've been called to do will be frustrating. Oh, it, it'll be frustrating because success will seem like it's just constantly evading you. Like 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 making that sale just won't seem to close. Man, man um, maybe you're a financial advisor and getting people to put their money in the right places in the market. it's it just for whatever reason it's gonna it's just gonna it's just gonna China's gonna do something tomorrow. And and, and whatever the thing is, you're, you're gonna constantly run up against just the sheer fact that work is hard. It's toil. It, it doesn't seem to get anywhere. It's frustrating. But what God promises Adam is that no longer you're going to live in this lush garden where you just put a little work in and food is just going to spring up around you. Now, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow, producing anything that leads to flourishing. In fact, don't forget flourishing. Let's just talk about you getting a meal tomorrow. It's going to be hard. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be difficult. It's going to leave you regularly throwing up your hands, saying, what on earth am I doing right now? This is what's to be expected. Please hear that. I, I talk to many people who think that and because their work is hard, because it's frustrating, because it feels at times like they're banging their head against a wall or they're just in a rut... That somehow they're outside of God's intentions for their work life. And that may be so. But I think far more often we have have unrealistic, unbiblical expectations for what our work will feel like day in and day out. The author of Ecclesiastes says that it will feel like vanity, like shepherding wind, which is kind of like shepherding cats. Just as, sometimes it's just going to feel like it's not getting anywhere. It's painful. It's hard. It's hard to find success. And, and sometimes that's due to our own inability. So, so anytime I set out, once a year, I set out um, to go into the garage and, and use a saw and make something. And every time my wife just kind of, she doesn't fight it anymore. She just kind of nods and lets me go and, and, and prays I don't cut off a finger. Whatever it is I set out to make, it's not going to be square. It's not going to have good, I don't even know the words, but it's just not going to be good. Whatever the thing is, I I don't measure enough, I don't do like any, and and I've discovered that it has to do with anything, it has to do with numbers. Now, that's not a problem with numbers, that's not a problem with carpentry, it's not a problem with any of those things. In other words, the, the problem isn't the work, the problem is the worker. I'm just frustratingly bad at those things. And so sometimes it's our own inabilities, but, but sometimes and the, the work we've been called to do is just, sometimes it's just monotonous. Um, last week we talked about the, the miracle of a pen. I, I forgot to bring my pen up here. Um, but, 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 but just thinking about the, the, the glory that we're holding in our hands, some of you are holding in your hand right now pens. Can you imagine what went into that pen being provided for you by God? I mean, it's mind-blowing. The chemist who figured out the appropriate mix of ink so that the ink wouldn't bleed all over the paper but would make a line when you draw a line. That, that took a chemist. It probably took a whole factory of chemists to figure that out. And, and, and the plastic in the pen, if there's metal in your pen, if you're, you're a high roller, you've got actual metal in your pen. And that, like, you know, that's amazing. And if you can think about the, the tip of the pen, and, and if you're talking about a rollerball, I mean, how do they get rollerballs? I mean, ballpoints are so frustrating. They just drag. But those rollerballs, they just float. Across the paper. That's magical. Can you imagine how monotonous the work is that goes into making that pen? How soul-numbing it must feel to the line worker who goes in, whose only job is to make sure the little ink cartridge gets slid into the barrel of the pen and then place it back on the assembly line as it continues to roll down. Can you imagine what they say to their friends when they go home at the end of the day? And this is what you're to expect. And lest you think that any of that is at odds with what we talked about last week, you're wrong. The glory oftentimes is in the monotony. It's in the treachery. It's in the difficulty. It's in the, the endless call to be faithful with what you've been given, whatever that job may be. That maybe you're selling overpriced paper to people with control issues. That maybe you have to work in a mall. I had to work in a mall. It just sucks the life out of your soul. The smell of Auntie Ann's pretzels, the lighting. The way it's designed like a maze, you can never find your way out. Oh, but right there, right there, it is both the frustration that the Bible promises us and the purpose that God calls us to. Now, one last thing I want to point out to you about this, and I actually want us to flip over to Romans chapter 8. the the foundational problem in this text i just want to make this as absolutely clear as i possibly can is not that your work is hard it's not that your work is frustrating it's not that other people are frustrating Now, the foundational problem at the very heart of this text is that you and I have rebelled against God, and because of our rebellion against God, we no longer walk in communion with Him, we no longer walk in fellowship with Him, we no longer walk as those who trust Him, who cling to Him, and therefore bear His image faithfully in the midst of the world. That's the foundational problem. And so, um, at at the end of the day, this, actually getting this right will reshape how you think about everything in your life, and it will absolutely reshape how you think about these particular problems. You you see, um, many times we think that our biggest issue tomorrow is the people that we work with, or we think that our biggest issue tomorrow is is just the job that we're stuck in. But can I just tell you, that's not your biggest problem. that's not your biggest issue. Your biggest issue is not those relationships. Your biggest issue is not your struggle to get the job done or or see the job fulfilled or to find some sense of deep existential satisfaction in your job. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, is I was made to know God. I was made to commune with God. I was made to fellowship with God. And I've rebelled against Him. And it's in the light of that rebellion that I want you to observe a very difficult fact. All of the frustrations that are outlined for us in these verses are implemented by God. In other words, nowhere does this text say um, that that our frustrations with people, the difficulty in our work, sometimes the futility of our work, is simply the natural result of life in a broken world. These are things that God has done. The things about your job that frustrate you, at least in part, come from God. Why? Why? Flip over to Romans chapter 8. This is where we're going to end. Read with me starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time... Stop for a second. All of them. Not just the Christians that are being dragged off to prison, all of the sufferings of this present time, all of the difficulties, all of the frustrations, all of the, uh, all of the dealing with other people's junk, and dealing, um, dealing with our own sin, dealing with our own propensity just to run from God, I and mean, um, all of the sufferings of this present time, now listen to this, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, I'm sorely tempted to go there right now, but that's next week. With the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Now, I want you to read into that phrase: the, the, the all of creation, all of the the, the creation that we've been called um, to, to, to to cultivate, to wield for the glory of God and the flourishing of people. All of that creation has been subjected to futility, has been subjected to frustration, has been subjected to thorns and thistles, has been subjected to difficulty. Not willingly. In other words, creation wasn't going make this hard. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. See it? Why is there futility? Why is there difficulty? Why are there thorns and thistles? Why are there frustrations in your work tomorrow? Oh yes, we can say because of sin. Absolutely true. But, but why is it hard to make a living? Why is it hard to do something that leads to flourishing? Because somebody subjected, someone subjected all of this creation, all of this world that we're working in. He subjected it to futility in hope. Hope for what? That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here's, here's what Paul just said God has subjected all of creation to futility. Your job is going to be frustrating. It's going to be hard. You should not look and seek after finding ultimate existential fulfillment in the work that you're doing with your hands and with your life. God has ordered the world in such a way, at least in this age, that the work that we've been called to do, and many of you have wonderful jobs that you love, there's still going to be moments, key moments in which you're frustrated, in which it's hard. Some of you have been called to a particular season right now where every day is hard. And it's God's intention that it be hard. It's God's intention that it be frustrated. Because left to ourselves, we will seek glory, we will seek control, we will seek comfort, we will seek God's in that work. And so God at every turn frustrates us, frustrates us, frustrates us, frustrates us. Why? That we would be set free to find our identity, to find our meaning, to find our hope, to find our joy. Where? In communion with him as children again. You see, the biggest problem is not that your job is frustrating It's that you don't cling to God your Father. The biggest problem is not the people that you work with that are really frustrating to you. No, your biggest problem is you don't run to your God, to, to your Father in the midst of trouble, in the midst of frustration, in the midst of your inabilities and incompetence and difficulties and struggles that you face each and every day in your work. Um, and you don't turn to Him. You just try to find your identity in those things. And the call of God, the reason why God frustrates those ends is that we would turn to Him again and again and again and again and find their righteousness and find their glory and find their joy and find their meaning and find their everything that you cannot find in your job. So that now, tomorrow at 10 a.m., when you're frustrated, you're not frustrated as a slave, as one who has has to just grit your teeth and make it through and prove that you're good enough. No, now you're free. Yet you're free to do that job faithfully, to struggle, to fail, and to have a hard day as a child who's been given righteousness, as a child who's been given glory, as a child who's been given meaning, not as a slave who has to earn it. Oh, your work, Your work is meant to be hard. Your work has been tainted by sin. Your work has been subjected, all of it has been subjected to futility. That all of us might cling to our Father and find our hope, our meaning, our joy there. And then to wield our lives in the midst of frustration for the glory of our Father and the flourishing of people. Let's pray. And so Father, I pray right now that by your Spirit you would so ground us, so root us in the love that you have for us in Jesus. So immerse us in the in the, the knowledge that is almost too wonderful. It's the God of the universe, the God that spoke into existence everything that is, that, that you love us, that you've cleansed us, that you've adopted us as sons and daughters. God, that that we would realize that tomorrow morning, we don't have to go and earn that love. We don't have to go prove that we're worthy of that love, Um, but we simply have to trust in Jesus. We have to cling to Jesus. That that, that the work we go to do tomorrow, wherever it is, if it's at home with the kids, if it's at um, a job we can't stand or a job that we've been waiting our whole lives to have, whatever it is, we don't go to that job to earn anything with you. But we don't go to that job to atone for any sins in our life. We go as the children of God. But we go bearing His image, bearing your image, in, into the midst of frustration, into the midst of difficulty, in the midst of pain, in the midst of failure, in the midst of other people's trouble. But we go to bear witness to the God who is good, who is glorious, who is beautiful, and who is gracious. So come, ground us, root us in the love of Jesus, even as we taste this bread and wine. In your name we pray, amen.